Hey, good morning, church, wherever you find yourself. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be in Judges chapter 4 this morning. I want to look at a character called Deborah. So if you haven't read the passage, can I encourage you to hit pause and either read through it in your own Bible where you are, or you can go back and find in the link below, you can find the video which will have it already recorded there. So I encourage you to do that before we go into our main service. Judges chapter 4 looks at the fourth judge over Israel. Her name is Deborah, and she is the leader, but she's also the catalyst that encourages Barak to go and defeat the Canaanite enemy. Here's her battle cry that comes in chapter 4. So Deborah's a judge. She's a leader over the nation of Israel. We see in chapter 4 that she's a prophetess, which means that she is God's spokesperson for such a time as this. So it's clear that she is a wise lady. She is a well-respected lady. It is clear that she acted in terms of a judicial or pastoral or prophetic role at this time in history. But as we come to chapter 4, there's a crisis. There's a crisis, and it's been going on for the last 20 years. And the crisis is God's people are caught in sin. Not only are they caught in sin, but they are being oppressed by this foreign enemy. And they have been like that for the last 20 years. In fact, if you go to chapter 5 and Deborah's song, you will see some more detail as to what that actually looked like. You will discover that no one went out onto the main roads. They didn't do that because they were scared of being attacked or robbed by this foreign enemy. The towns were in hiding and in lockdown. So they were like ghost towns. The situation in chapter 4 is utterly hopeless. That is until Deborah's battle cry. In verse 6, Deborah orders Barak, who is the commander of this army, to be mobilized. We see her battle cry. It says this, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over them. As I read that, I guess the question I have, which maybe is the same question you have, is this. Where have all these warriors been for the last 20 years? Where have these 10,000 mighty warriors been for the last 20 years? What have they been doing? Well, it seems that they, like their general Barak, have simply hung up their weapons. They've gone into early retirement and they have gone into hiding because of the threat that is on their lives and their nation's life. Because if you do some research and you look into what type of oppression this army was, you get to see that Sisera was a ruthless commander of his army. He had at his disposal 900 iron chariots. And on those iron chariots, there were large swords that came out of the hubs of those wheels. So if the iron chariots didn't crush you, if they didn't do some kind of drive-by, stab-you-are-dead move on you, then you would be cut to pieces with these swords that come out of the sides of the wheels. It was a ruthless, bloody, violent end to anyone that dared get in the way of this enemy. 
But here in this chapter, chapter 4, we see Deborah. Deborah is unlike the nation. Deborah is unlike Barak. Deborah is unlike these hiding, scared warriors. She has faith. She has faith in a great God because she knows that God is greater than this enemy. And she comes along and she reassures her people in verse 7 by saying that God will give Sisera into your hands. All Barak literally has to do in this passage is go and mobilize 10,000 of his lazy hiding warriors and show up for battle, and God is going to hand the victory over to him. That's all he has to do, which sounds dead easy, but Barak in verse 8 is unwilling to go without Deborah. He wants Deborah to hold his hand before he goes ahead. And I guess it's easy to make fun of Barak. Like, it's easy to make fun of him. It's easy to make fun of his wimpy enemy in this passage as well. But here's the thing. Fear is real. And sometimes fear blinds our perspective. We are in uncertain times, like today. You don't need to me explain to you what fear means. We are in that season of fear right now. Our world and our streets and our city and our neighbors are gripped with this fear of uncertain times. And this is what fear does. Fear suffocates our faith. Like, you know that today. You know that the times that we live in right now, as fear has gripped us, that there are people that are doing and saying things that they might not normally do, all because they are gripped with fear. Fear suffocates faith. And here is Barak in this passage for 20 years, caught in the grip of fear. Like, he might have been given a promise. Clearly, he's been given a promise in this passage. And all he has to do is believe that promise and follow that promise. But isn't he just like us sometimes? He's just human. And sometimes doubt creeps in, and fear creeps in. So he wants Deborah to hold his hand. He wants Deborah to go forward with him. Because what he is thinking in this passage, if he could only get Deborah to go along with him, then he might actually win the battle. If he can just get Deborah, who is God's prophet, who is God's woman for such a time as this, who is God's spokesperson, who is full of faith, maybe if he could just get her to go along, then things will work out just fine. He wants to put his hope and his assurance in Deborah. And how often do we fix our eyes on the wrong things or on the wrong people? You can be like Barak in this passage, and you can fix your eyes on the enemy and be crippled with fear. Or you can also be like Barak in this passage and take your eyes off the enemy, but put your eyes on the wrong rescuer. And I think that's what he's doing with Deborah here. Deborah has her eyes fixed on God. In verse 12, the scene is Barak, Deborah, and 10,000 warriors who have assembled at the top of Mount Tabor. The camera then drops to the base of the mountain, and in verse 13, Sisera and his 900 iron chariots are there waiting. You can imagine them revving their engines, ready to destroy any fool that would step off that mountain onto the flat ground of the Kishon River. Incidentally, at this time, it is drought season, so the ground is flat and it is dry. It is the perfect landscape for these mighty iron chariots to be mobilized. The scene is tense. 
And then all of a sudden, it's broken by the battle cry of Deborah in verse 14. And that cuts through the air and echoes on the top of that mountain, and it travels all the way down that mountain. And so too does Barak and his 10,000 warriors. You can imagine this as a movie scene. You can imagine that slow-motion charge down the mountain, the dramatic music building along the way, and the scene cuts to the fearless, overconfident, seemingly impenetrable 900 iron chariot army at the bottom of that mountain. They are holding their ground, ready to tear through anyone that steps off that mountain. Then the ground begins to shake There are heavy, dark clouds that begin to close in. The wind picks up, the heavens open. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's heavy rain. And you can imagine that heavy drop of the first piece of rain hit off the hard, dry ground of that mountain. Splat, 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 and continues on and on until a torrential storm of rain comes. And all of a sudden, that riverbed that was dry now becomes alive. And those chariots that once were so powerful on that dry, dry flat ground are now bogged down in the mud and the mire, and they're stuck, and their chariots and their power and their boats are useless at this point. And Barak and his 10,000 men are able to overpower and destroy and kill every single one. There's not a single person in that enemy who is left alive. The problem with the story is that Sisera does a running. There's all this panic and there's all this confusion. He jumps off his horse, he jumps off his chariot, and he does a runner. And in verse 17, we find that he gets refuge with Hebor uh, the Kenite. If you recall in verse 11, we are met with, or we're introduced to Hebor there. And it seems like pretty a random detail that we have in verse 11. It interrupts the flow of the chapter. It's not smooth the way it comes through. It's almost as if the reader, or, or sorry, the writer of this chapter decides he's forgot to add a piece of information. And the piece of information is he forgot to say that there's this group, this man and a woman who's supposed to be down south, but all of a sudden they get separated from their tra- clan. They go north and they settle near the mountain where this battle has been. So verse 11 almost seems like an irrelevant piece of information, but it's such a good piece of news if you are on the run from 10,000 warriors that have just wiped out your army. It's really fortunate that this group, this family, didn't go south but went north. And it's really fortunate that Sisera is able to find Hebor and his wife, Jael. He finds a safe house, or he finds a safe tent. He is welcomed in. Jael welcomes him in, settles his fears in verse 18, gives him a drink in verse 19, and even in verse 20, she is willing to stand guard at the entrance to the tent. It seems that she is a real gift of hospitality at this point. At the end of verse 21, Sisera is exhausted. He drifts off into a deep sleep. And it would seem that the felon in our story, the bad guy in our story, gets to slip through the net and he gets away scot-free. But our story takes a bit of a twist when we come to verse 21. As Jezreel breaches all kinds of hospitality protocols and as 
Sisera drifts off into a deep sleep. She takes a peg and a hammer and drives it deep into the side of his head. And then in verse 21, in understatement of all biblical understatements, there's this little detail that's added, so he died. And I'm like, well, of course he died. Other than that, he's going to have a massive headache for quite a number of months if he didn't die. So here we have the end of the story. Defeat. Barak conquered quite a lot of the enemy, but it takes this woman to come and finish the job. Sisera meets his end at the hands of this hospitable tent peg assassin. Just as Deborah prophesied to Barak in verse 9, I will go with you, but you will not receive the honor of this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. It's rather embarrassing for this commander of this group of 10,000 warriors. So Judges 4. Judges 4 is a story about two women who through carefully timed challenges and circumstances and being in the right place at the right time are able to mobilize an army and are able to defeat the evil felon at the end of the story. It's a story about Barak who eventually rallies his lazy trips and goes through the motions of traveling down that motion and through some good fortune and a heavy rainstorm is able to defeat the enemy. But in the end, it is a woman that has to finish the job for him. And is that all that chapter 4 is about? Or is there more at work here in chapter 4? Well, I think chapter 4 is ultimately about God weaving His plans and His purposes through this chapter. Chapter 4 is where we see God causing Deborah to be full of boldness and faith and giving out this battle cry at a time that is most needed. Her battle cry in verse 14, get ready, go. This is the day the Lord will give you victory. The Lord is marching ahead of you. And I love that. I love that God is marching ahead of them in the battle. And if God is like a mighty warrior who marches ahead of you, then all of a sudden 900 powerful iron chariots fade into insignificance. They become less threatening. God also in chapter 4 causes... Sisera to be lured into position and bring his 900 most powerful iron-clad chariots to the base of this mountain, into the dry riverbeds. It's drought season, and military speaking, strategy-wise, this is a good call. No water, it's flat, it's the perfect ground that they need it. And he is there ready, full of confidence and pride with his powerful chariots. But it was also God that caused this storm to come, a freak unseasonal storm to come, and this heavy rain to fall. And it was God that caused the army of Sisera to fall into complete panic, become bogged down in the mud and the mire. God called Sisera to get off his horse and flee, caused him to meet a family that should have been in the south, but all of a sudden find themselves in the north, but not just anywhere in the north, quite close to the mountain where this battle was and very close to where Sisera is fleeing from. There just happened to be a tent there. There just happened to be a welcome, and in he goes. And it just so happened that God caused Jerel to drive this tent peg through his head. And in that moment, ending 
20 years of oppression, in that moment doing what 10,000 warriors couldn't do, in that moment doing what Barak couldn't do. All you needed was one woman and one tent peg and one hammer, and the rest is history. So it is God in this chapter that brings the victory. And I guess what we learn from this passage is that God is always in control. God is at the center of every single event. He is always working, even whenever we don't see that. And even when it doesn't feel like He's working, He is there. He is in the middle of it, and He is in control. And I guess in the time that we find ourselves, the question that I am sure you have as you listen to that, wherever you find yourself today, because you watch the news as much as I watch the news, you're following what's happening as much as I'm following what's happening, and sometimes it does not feel like God is in control. It just doesn't feel like God is in control. It doesn't feel like God is marching ahead of me. It doesn't feel like He has things in control because all I am seeing is the enemy. All I am seeing is the threat. All I am seeing is the impossibilities. I'm just not seeing God. So I wonder, can you relate? And maybe the person that we are in this passage is Barak because we are all petrified, we are all fearful, and we are all hiding, and we all have no idea what we're doing. Maybe today you feel worry, or maybe you feel helpless, or maybe you feel fearful, or maybe you feel that you are being crushed by this unstoppable enemy. Like, what on earth is going on in the world right now? I want to say to you this morning that it's okay to feel weak, It's okay to feel out of your depth. It's okay to feel overwhelmed. It's okay to feel afraid today because we're all human. And here's the thing, this virus, this pandemic that has gripped our world didn't catch God by surprise, but it sure has caught us by surprise. So it's okay to be afraid today. But I want to encourage us to try to move away from that fear and put our confidence in God. Because I want you to hear what God would say to us this morning, and it's from this chapter. God would say that I walk ahead of you. I march ahead of you. I am your strength, and I will give you the victory in this. Or listen to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you, so do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And I love that. And I want that. And I crave that. And I would love to be able to model that more effectively to my family, to my friends, or to the church. So where do we get that confidence from? How can we be like Deborah, full of faith, looking to a God who is greater than our problems? How can we have that confidence? Well, in Judges chapter 4, there is a picture of a hammer that nailed a tent peg through the head of a man who deserved to die. But as we jump to the New Testament, we also see a picture of a hammer that drives nails into the feet and hands of a man who did not deserve to die. And the reason that he came and the reason that he died was so that he could bring us hope in our moments of crisis, because our greatest enemy is sin, is Satan, and death. And Jesus has come to defeat that. He has come into His moment on a cross, which is the ultimate 
scene and the ultimate picture and the ultimate scenario of isolation, cut off from everyone because of sins that he didn't commit on a cross, cut off from everyone, but he does that so that he could crush and trample over in victory sin and Satan and death. He is our only hope today. He is our only hope in this moment, in this season that we find ourselves in. So today, I want to encourage you by saying, God marches ahead of you. I want to encourage us by saying, tomorrow God will march ahead of us. I want to encourage you that in these days, these seasons, these weeks, these months, whatever it looks like, I want you to know God marches ahead of you. So church, be blessed, be safe, lean into God, press into God, trust God. He is here and he marches ahead of you. Be blessed, be safe. Amen.